5: Hi, this is Josh Levine and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 29th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick's decision to sit for the National Anthem and how his brand of activism is playing in the United States of America. We'll also discuss the impasse between the San Diego Chargers and their first-round draft pick, Joey Bosa who's yet to sign a contract as the start of the NFL season approaches. And Sam Miller, the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, will join us to talk about the greatest player in the history of any sport, mm-hmm. Yankees catcher <laughs> Gary Sanchez, who has 11 home runs in 22 games played in this his rookie season. Joining me in Washington, D.C., is Stefan Fatsas, author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. You just call me the Sanchez. I just want to get the Sanchez out of the <laughs> way now. And not return to it ever. All right. Done. And sitting in for Mike Pesco this week and joining us from a soundproof booth in Patrick Peterson's mom's TV room, <laughs> it's ESPN the Magazine senior writer, Mina Kimes. Hello, Mina.
4: Hey, guys.
5: And in our bonus segment this week, well, first, let me say this. We're looking for a new intern. If you're in Washington, D.C. and you're available on Mondays, you like to do a little research for the podcast... Email us at hangup at slate dot com, and we will make things happen. So, Mina, we've had you back because you are hang up and listener turning champion, but also you've been kind of taking an extended victory lap on social media about how right you were about Ryan Lochte.
4: Yes, I have. Also in our emails, I specifically requested to return to, yeah, take a victory lap, basically, about how incredibly right I was. In the heat of the moment, as the news was unfolding, I made the right call.
5: So that's the lesser known fifth leg of the uh, individual medley, the victory lap, just done in whatever style the victor wants. In In this case, the style is the Slate Plus bonus segment. So in our bonus segment for Members, we will revisit the Lock D scandal, Swim Gazi, yeah. and Mina will take her victory lap. And we'll talk about the things I was right about, too.
3: Yeah, because Mina, Mina didn't want to take the loser lap for going all pro-South Korea in the Little League World Series final yesterday oh, against man. the U.S. of A.
4: You know what? Okay, so I'm half Korean. So as I said, I was half happy. But let's be real. I was, I was reading for Korea.
5: To hear more of what Mina was right and wrong about. Uh, sign, up for <laughs> Slate, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus. You get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts, and you can get a two-week free trial to just revel in the victory lap if you so desire. On Friday in Santa Clara, California, 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick did not stand with his teammates during the national anthem, the playing therein. Kaepernick hadn't stood for the anthem during the Niners' previous two preseason games, as it's a sign of his status with the team that nobody had noticed because he was not dressed out for those first two preseason games due to a shoulder injury. This time, Pro Football Talk did notice. When asked why he'd stayed on the bench, Kaepernick told NFL media, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way their bodies on the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. On Sunday, he talked at great length about this in the 49ers locker room, answering every question that the press threw his way. And let's listen to a clip.
1: To sit? Yes, uh, I'll continue to sit. I'm going to continue to stand with the people that are being oppressed. Uh, to me, this is something that has to change. And when there's significant change, and I feel like that flag... Represents what's supposed to represent, and this country is representing people the way that's supposed to. I'll stand. Specifically, what would you like to see? There's a lot of things that need to change. Uh, one, one specifically is police brutality. There's people being murdered unjustly and not being held accountable. Cops are getting paid leave for killing people. That's not right. That's not right by anyone's standards.
5: So, Mina, the response to this has been. Enormous. And, you know, I've seen some people say that this is the perfect controversy for Twitter because you don't <laughs> have to know anything or hear anything to have an opinion about whether a uh, <laughs> black athlete who's the backup quarterback on the 49ers, who's making tens of million dollars a year, has the right to not stand for the national anthem. But the response has been very interesting from players, from coaches, from the league, and not entirely predictable.
4: Yeah, I think what's remarkable is the amount of players coming forth, and especially out of the Niners locker room. There's been a lot of quotes over the past few days with players saying, you know, Kaepernick, they had a, a team meeting and he sort of sat everyone down and talked to him about why he had done this and how he felt about it. And there are players can be saying, oh, before he did this, I would have opposed it. But afterwards, you know, he really made me think about criminal justice in America and these issues, white players, which is remarkable because that very rarely happens in the NFL.
3: And yet on the other side, you have your ex-ryans <laughs> and you have players saying, I disagree with him doing this and not even supporting his right to do it. And of course, the reaction on Twitter from uh, from idiots has been also predictable, conflating Kaepernick's performance in the last couple of seasons to his rights to do whatever he wants, to have this position and to make these statements. What triggered all of this is, of course, the national anthem. I mean, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, other athletes have been very outspoken. We've had a couple on the show in the last couple of months about the state of race relations in the United States, about police brutality, about Black Lives Matter, about these issues that have become so prominent in culture and in the presidential campaign. But the focus here is this song and its place in American sports culture and American sports history.
4: Yeah, and I think what makes Colin Kaepernick's protests maybe stand out from what we've seen from athletes over the last few years is what he's saying is these issues bother me so much. They touch my life and the life of people who look like me so much that I'm going to take a stand that people are going to be very angry about because I don't feel patriotic, because I don't believe this anthem represents me. And, you know, I think that sometimes you have to do something that makes people angry in order to sort of create this sort of conversation around it. I mean, the conversation around what Colin Kaepernick did has been so much bigger, broader, and more dramatic, I think, than anything instigated by an athlete thus far.
5: Yeah, Andrew Hawkins talked about this when he was on our show a while back and saying that if you're not uncomfortable in the protest that you're making, then that's a problem. Then you're not putting yourself out there to a degree that you should be. And that is interesting in the context of Kaepernick because looking back now, the way that Carmelo Anthony and LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Paul disseminated their message, and this is, I'm I'm not intending this to criticize those guys, but... It was safe. It was safe. Like putting a photo on Instagram of, you know, Muhammad Ali, especially when Ali's image has been so kind of sanitized... And he's really a saint and people aren't really thinking about how controversial and, and recognizing how controversial he was at the time. He was the Colin Kaepernick of his day, I think, uh, is how we should I think that's where we're going r- to to remember him. Yeah. But also NBA fans are, I think, more black and younger as um, a demographic and those players – Are more popular, and I think, you know, certainly not above criticism, Uh but less in a position to be criticized in the way Kaepernick has been. And then choosing the national anthem as a target, as Mina did, you open yourself up to you're not supporting the troops, (laughs) you hate America. And so that's why it doesn't take a player who's, you know, the most famous are the best to become a lightning rod. Oh, I should also mention the WNBA. I think those players all had like incredible skin in the game and were making a huge mm-hmm. statement, but people don't care as much about the WNBA right. to right. state the obvious. Right.
3: right. Well, you think about the protests historically in sports that have resulted in the athlete being vilified. And you can go back to say Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar refusing to play for the Olympic team in the 1960s. Um Think about Jackie Robinson. Someone posted on Twitter a Jackie Robinson quotation that was repeated in Jonathan Igg's book, Opening Day, about Robinson. Uh, He wrote this as a preface to one of his autobiographies in 1967 and he says i'm just going to read it there i was the black grandson of a slave the son of a black sharecropper part of a historic occasion a symbolic hero to my people the air was sparkling the sunlight was warm the band struck up the national anthem the flag billowed in the wind it should have been a glorious moment for me as the stirring words of the national anthem poured from the stands perhaps it was but then again perhaps the anthem could be called the theme song for a drama called the noble experiment today as i look back on the opening game of my first World Series I must tell you that it was Mr. Ricky's drama and that I was only a principal actor as I write this 20 years later I cannot stand and sing the anthem I cannot salute the flag
4: I'm almost embarrassed to admit this but before this happened this weekend and all these stories came out I had no idea about the history of the anthem in sports and you know what it meant and and ESPN had done a story about how I think the original I think the first time that the mm-hmm. anthem was played at a baseball game, it was to gin up ticket sales, right? So yeah, it was, kind it was of uh, during the World Series in
3: 1918. From and- the
4: beginning and corrupted, I think, in its, its messaging. I had no idea. Uh, and, and it's funny because I think not standing for the anthem, you can be angry about it for two reasons. You can say it's Oh, okay, he's not a patriot, he's not supporting our country. And yeah, that's what he's saying. That is the natural endpoint of saying you don't agree with what a government is doing and you don't feel like it affords you the same liberties as other people live in the country. The other argument is that it's anti-military, which A, he did clarify and say this is not about the military. But B, it really got me thinking how weird it is that we do have this like right before sports games where we honor mm-hmm. the military. Is that the best way to express support for the military? Also in the NFL, which, as we know, has taken payments from the military to promote the military before games.
3: Yeah, the anthem has become a sine qua non for Sporting events in the United States—it's just weird. And and Mina, you alluded to the start of this. It happened in 1918 during the World Series. The U.S. was entering World War One. Players were being conscripted into the army. Um, there had been a bombing of the Chicago Federal Reserve a few days before the first game of the series to be played in Chicago, the Cubs, who were in the series against the Red Sox, decided to move the series from their smaller Wrigley Field, which didn't have as many seats then, to Comiskey Park, which had 30,000 seats. And ticket sales were slow because of these issues going on in society. And they played the national anthem, and it turned out to be a hit. Fans were into it. And 27,000 people showed up at game two instead of 19,000 at game one. And it took a while, but th- it it then became this tradition as owners realized this was a way to goose the public into caring about the game by by uniting these two things, patriotism and sports.
5: Yeah, I mean, there are certainly moments in American history when games, sporting events, even when it's not Team USA, when there is kind of a legitimate uh, feeling of patriotism in the stands. You think about after 9-11, you know, with the Mike Piazza home run or, you know, in that game in 1918, it seems like maybe there is a legitimate reason for the playing of the national anthem for people to feel patriotic. But I think... What's great about what Kaepernick did is that the national anthem has become perfunctory and we mm-hmm. don't think about why it's played. We don't think about why God Bless America has become this staple of the seventh inning stretch. And it's great to you know, have an occasion to step back and actually think about why these things have become – Staples of our games and whether they should be. And there was a piece on the Intercept by John Schwartz that points out, like the obvious point, that the Star-Spangled Banner was written when slavery was, you know, legal in the United States, and during the, the,
3: th- during the War of eighteen twelve.
5: And the third verse of the Star-Spangled Banner, and you know, we uh, there are all these verses of, of songs <laughs> that, yeah, that. Yeah. We just don't don't know exists, but we should know exists. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave and the star-spangled banner and triumph doth wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. That's kind of an an interesting juxtaposition. No refuge could save the hireling and slave or the land of the free and the home of the brave.
4: I had no idea that's like when you play Pink Floyd's album backwards and it's a satanic, or is that Led Zeppelin? Am I confusing? (laughs) The idea of all these like American famous songs having like racist B sides is somehow entirely unsurprising to me.
3: (laughs) Well, and the the other the other issues that get conflated here that we play the national anthem because sports reflect how great we are as a country and sports are also a proxy for war. And I don't totally buy that. I think it's more about American exceptionalism, that our sports matter so much that they represent our country and our country only. And Canada, we're going to make you guys sing O Canada at hockey games too. And I don't know if there's actually a separate tradition in Canada and that's why O Canada is sung, but it sure feels that way. Um, And to not allow or to be against the notion of protesting against the national anthem is is ludicrous. I mean, we, I mentioned Al uh, Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, Ali also didn't go to fight in Vietnam because he was protesting the government. He didn't like things that were happening in the government. Fifty-three years ago on Sunday was the March on Washington and, and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Who joined that march? Who marched on Washington? The reigning NBA MVP, Bill Russell, was part of that. So the the idea that an athlete can't oppose the direction of or things that are happening in government is not something that is new to Colin Kaepernick. It is something that is important in the history of sports in America.
4: It's interesting how many of the critiques of Kaepernick have also not engaged at all with his points or the issues he's bringing up, but have simply kind of argued, oh, well, he, he did it wrong, and unlike XYZ yeah. athlete, uh, or or many of them have gone after his character, oh, he did this in the past, oh, we, we've heard that song before, right? Or he's too wealthy, which is crazy. He somehow profits country. Also, uh, People saying, oh, well, he's not good at football anymore, and he's trying to be relevant again. A, this is pretty much the worst thing you can do uh, as an athlete to regain some semblance of, like, popularity. And B, like, he, this that is actually what makes this all the more remarkable to me because in the NFL, if you're really good and talented and have a secure roster position, you can kind of say whatever you want and do whatever you want, as we've learned. Colin Kaepernick is not in that position. He is very much on the bubble of being a starter in San Francisco, and yet he's gone out on a limb here And that makes it all the more remarkable to me.
5: Yeah, just to get a little bit more into the substance or lack thereof of the critique here, Fox Sports, which is not particularly slowly turning into, you know, the Fox News of sports. On one side, you had Clay Travis, who was kind of exulting on Twitter all weekend about how he destroyed Colin Kaepernick and how Colin Kaepernick is a moron. Basically, his point was that there's no problem for black people in America. So that was kind of one one side of it. And then Jason Whitlock, on the other side, his argument, he had this coinage twoke that was uh, Colin (laughs) Colin Kaepernick saw something on Twitter or he's like 140 characters uh, worth of aware about history. So that idea, to boil it down, is he's too stupid to or too ignorant to protest, which uh, I thought was interesting. (laughs) You know, if we're not going to be able to uh, litigate the uh, entire history of uh, America on this podcast, unfortunately. But if you just look at the Bay Area, San Francisco Police Department, racist, like horribly bigoted racist text messages. Uh, This scandal happened within last year. You know, uh, I could read a few of these. Uh, it's worth every penny to live here away from the savages talking about Walnut Creek. These guys are pretty stupid. Ask some dumbass questions you would expect from a black rookie. Sorry if they're your buddies. Uh, do you celebrate Kwanzaa, your school? Yeah, we burn the cross on the field. Then we celebrate White And, you know, we also probably don't have time to get into the Oakland, you know, sex uh, scandal that's led to, you know, a bajillion different uh, leadership changes in that police department. So just the idea that you don't have the right to protest because, you know, you're, you know, you make too much money, as Mina said, or because there really aren't any problems with the uh, police in America. Like, yeah. come on, dude.
3: Well, and the way the dumb white columnist parse it is also – Uh, reflective of what's going on here. Mina, you identified some dude in Houston at the Houston Chronicle named Brian T. Smith who in an idiotic column defended Carlos Delgado when he refused to stand for God Bless America in 2004 because he opposed a war, quote, not enough Americans truly believed in. And he defended uh, Carmelo Anthony and Dwayne Wade for creating important conversations but but Kaepernick is like a selfie in the Instagram age. It really is. It's the Jason Whitlock argument that he's not smart enough and this mm-hmm. is just a social media um, behavior intended to draw attention to him.
4: What's amazing about Kaepernick, too, coming out on Sunday and speaking at great length, not just to his teammates, but also to reporters, is he doesn't do that. Guys like Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. uh, has had a very... He's had a roller coaster of a career. It's been, uh, you know, with extreme highs and extreme lows. But throughout all of that, he's been pretty reticent. He doesn't talk a lot. He's he's not a Richard Sherman. He's not out there doing press conferences. So for him to wait kind of by this time, then come out and do this and then follow it up with a long, eloquent sort of expression of his feelings, that says a lot.
3: Uh, Except I think we should also point out that he also said about the presidential election, you have Trump who's openly racist. We have a presidential candidate who has deleted emails and done things illegally and is a presidential candidate. That doesn't make sense to me because if that was any other person, you'd be in prison. So maybe not not completely aware.
5: Jill
4: Stein endorsement just around the corner with Colin Kaepernick.
5: Yeah. I mean, I think the eloquence is a little bit beside the point. Just this idea that you need to pass – some sort of test to be able to stand up and say what you believe in. Or, I mean, it's fine to point out the stuff that he says that is, you know, stupid or if you believe that it's stupid. But I do think that it's been heartening, especially from the players, that people have said, you know, it's fine for him to do this, for him to stand up for what he believes in. And I feel like you know, MMQB, which is kind of the font of conventional wisdom, Peter King did a poll. And I think it was like two-thirds of people that he polled said that Kaepernick was wrong, um, that he shouldn't have done what he did. But maybe it's just like, because my bar is so low, I've still been surprised that the response has been as positive as it has been. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree.
4: I think that poll was also Peter King just asking people to reply to a tweet. <laughs> so... <laughs> That would be like, yeah, if like the presidential election was decided by YouTube commenters or something.
5: Yeah, fair enough. But, you know, Kaepernick has been subjected to, I think there's no other way to say it, but extremely racist criticism throughout his career. Robert Klimko, also on MMQB, Mm -hmm. pointed out a column that was written in 2012 about how Kaepernick had, you know, a lot of tattoos and you can't be a quarterback on a team and be the CEO or face of the organization if you have tattoos and compare them to Michael Vick because, hey, that's a black guy who played quarterback who has tattoos. They must be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. There's also that meme that went around about comparing Colin Kaepernick to Russell Wilson and how Kaepernick (laughs) has photos on Instagram that show him with tattoos. And Russell Wilson has photos, you know, of himself, you know, Washing Mina's car. uh, (laughs) I would just
4: like to point out that I never circulated that meme, Josh.
5: (laughs) And, you know, visiting sick sick kids in hospitals. So even if you kind of separate out the, like, bigger picture issues, you can imagine that Colin Kaepernick is probably fed up with, you know, white sports writers telling him how he should behave and, you know, what's, uh, you know, appropriate and judging him based on, you know, not the things that he says, but just how he looks.
4: Yeah, I mean, Colin Kaepernick's biography is so wrapped up in this entire story. You know, he was adopted by white parents. And this is something that has been sort of thrown in his face almost his entire career. You know, you had Rick Riley writing a column about it um, when he was a rookie. And so for him to go through
5: that- Kaepernick was basically being an asshole for not wanting to be in touch with his birth parents. And
4: then following up more recently with a tweet when there were rumors about Colin Kaepernick being traded to Denver about how that would, I think, be awkward because his birth mother lives there or something incredibly inappropriate, but um, possibly the worst tweet of the year, to be honest. But anyways, you know, this guy has been really dragged by the media, the white media for his entire career. So... That, I think, goes a long way to explaining his stance today and why he's willing to speak out about it.
5: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, Josh Levine here, the host of the show. Remember me? So we recorded the following segment on Joey Bosa and the Chargers and their contract impasse on the morning of Monday, August 29th. Naturally, inevitably, due to the laws of uh, pre-recorded podcasts, the Chargers and Joey Bosa agreed to a contract after we finished taping this segment. So a couple facts you should know going into this. Bosa ended up getting a fully guaranteed signing bonus, and the Chargers ended up getting offset language, which means that if they cut him in year four of the deal, they won't have to pay out all the money that is in his contract. That'll probably make more sense once you listen to the segment. So the important thing to know is Joey Bosa and the Chargers screwed us over by signing this deal immediately after we finished the segment. But you should still listen to the segment because we got some larger points about football and money and contracts. Am I convincing you? I think it was a good segment. And really the team, the Chargers and Bosa, they should have come to this deal a long time ago. Still uh, stupid. All right, here we go. Back in April, the San Diego Chargers selected Ohio State defensive end Joey Bosa with the number three pick in the NFL draft. While every other first round pick signed a contract with his new team a very long time ago, Bosa and the Chargers have yet to come to an agreement. And the Chargers went so far as issuing a press release last week announcing to the world that they had made their best offer to Bosa, that it had been rejected by the player's representative, and that the team was pulling it off the table. The nutty thing here is that the NFL's collective bargaining agreement uh, essentially makes it so that these rookie deals are pre-written, that first-round picks all get four-year contracts with an option for a fifth year, that each slot in the draft is associated with a particular amount of money. Writing for the MMQB, Andrew Brandt says a union executive once told him a trained monkey could do these contracts. (laughs) And yet... In a piece for Bleacher Report, Mike Freeman wrote that other NFL general managers are laughing at the Chargers for ruining (laughs) Bosa's rookie season for no good reason. Stefan, the dispute here is just over incredibly small things, it seems to me. It's about what percentage of Bosa's signing bonus should be um, up front and what percentage should be deferred for just a couple of months. And then the other one is about something called offset language, which is in the very kind of off chance that Bosa gets cut by the team before his contract is over. Five years. Whether the team would have to pay his remaining salary. Right. So year. explain. Why Why is there a dispute here?
3: Well, there's a dispute here because the Chargers are notoriously and historically penurious They have screwed over players multiple times in the past, and they're basically trying to end around the NFLPA's agreement and the NFL's agreement, the way that rookies have been treated. Um, From what I understand, most rookies don't get both of those concessions. Uh, The rookies that are getting the huge deals, the top 10 picks, they don't get both the offset language waived and they don't get all of the bonus right up front. But Joey is the third pick in the draft. And the if you want to go anti-BOSA and you say, oh, he should be grateful he's getting $25 million in bonus money. Well, yeah, sure. But that doesn't mean he deserves to not have that money when traditionally top picks get that money so that he can invest it and behave the way normal people behave when they get their money. Um, and the offset language seems pretty picky too because the likelihood, well, it's hard to say in the NFL, but the likelihood of him being cut in year four isn't super high um, and him going to another team and the Chargers being on the hook for that money. And the other anti-Chargers part of this is that they've negotiated publicly and Bosa's agent has not. Bosa's agent has been pretty diplomatic in terms of the statements that he's Bosa. made on behalf of his
5: client. Bosa's mom and... and uh, this Has been less discreet. <laughs> yeah, she said on Facebook that she wished that they had pulled an Eli Manning, meaning... Uh, Manning was drafted by the Chargers in 2004 and that's demanded some, a trade to that's, the Giants. That's some good mm-hmm.
3: mom right there.
4: So let's look at the data on this. 18 of the 24 top five picks over the last four years have gotten one of the two things that Joey Bose is asking for here, which is either no offsets or getting their signing bonus in this calendar year. Uh, the last two third overall picks, which is where he was taken, Blake Bortles and Dante Fowler Jr., Both got deals with no offsets. Now, Stefan mentioned that the Chargers are negotiating publicly, which, by the way, is really crazy and unprecedented. I think Mm -hmm. that it's really thrown people. So they've come out and said a couple of things about his deal, uh, which I thought were a little bit misleading. One, they're saying, well, this has never happened before, you know. Well, yeah, they haven't had a top 10 pick since 2004. So they're comparing him to picks that they've had that have been much, much less talented. Yeah, they're saying Joe. we've
5: never paid anyone as much money as this. Well, yeah, because you oh, haven't duh. been in position to pay anyone. As, yeah, and then they're
4: saying, this. oh, he has a bigger signing bonus." Yeah, he's the third round pick. Like, it, it's totally... Illogical. And it really puts the Chargers in a bad light. You know, you mentioned his mom. Uh, what she tweeted was an article. I can't remember what it was, something about how the Chargers have been cheap in the past. I can't remember the headline, but they really do have a history of oh, yeah. doing this kind of thing.
3: Yeah, look at the holdouts Eli Manning, LaDanian Tomlinson, Quentin Jammer. Uh, there are more. Sean Merriman held out. Philip Rivers held out the year that that he was traded for Manning in the draft. So the the history here isn't that the Chargers are somehow reasonable and they're drafting bad people. It's that these are athletes with agents that want to be treated fairly. I mean, they are signing up to play a game that is likely to shorten their lifespan. They deserve to get what other players of the
5: same caliber have gotten. So – the the Joey Bosa contract negotiation, as fascinating as it is, I think would not support a uh, much longer mm-hmm. discussion on this podcast. But I think two larger points that are interesting are despite the fact that the Chargers do have a well-earned reputation for being penurious – It seems like the fans, and I'm going to now cite a poll, the one poll done in America that's less scientific than the (laughs) Peter King Twitter poll. Um, In the San Diego Union-Tribune, they cited a poll done by a sports radio station that said 84% of people who responded were pro-chargers. And the Union-Tribune, there's a guy, Kevin Acey, who I think, I've read him before, I think he's a smart guy, like generally, wrote this column that is like Mm -hmm. crazily anti-BOSA. And pro team. The other and columnist
3: just, did too, John Kanepa.
5: And just the point here is just how powerful and generally well received the message is that players are yeah. being greedy still to this day. I think it's changed somewhat in you know the last five, ten, twenty years since you know the Ad you know, advent of free agency speed, or whatever.
3: The speed that these sorts of stories um Get, accelerate to the point of does Joey Bosa want to play in the NFL? Does he want to be a charger? He doesn't want to be a charger. Um, he's and John Canepa, another columnist in San Diego. Bosa's being offered quarterback money. He's never played a down. We have no idea if he's going to be good or bust. Well, no shit. We have no idea whether any NFL player is going to be good or a bust or whether he is going to bust oh, immediately.
4: That's yeah. also not quarterback buddy. Can we just say like that's insane? But yeah, I mean, we root for teams, not for players, and we root for teams that play in a league with a salary cap. So naturally, fans and, you know, the people the voices who speak on their behalf do tend to align with ownership. But when you look at the conversation around this, so we were talking about the offsets earlier, it's being described by a lot of people in the press and I think um, you know, agents as well or teams as double dipping. So well, let's look at what this actually is. What an offset is, is, is the Chargers saying, okay, we're guaranteeing we're going to give you $25 million, which I think is his contract. Right. If you sign with another team in your fourth year, we cut you and you sign, and they give you $6 million, and we owed you $8 million, that we only have to give you $2 million. They're basically saying we don't deserve to take on any risk. How is that a player double dipping? Yet that's <laughs> the word we're using to describe what it is.
5: The other larger point I wanted to make here is that in November, there is a ballot initiative in San Diego uh, for the public financing of a new stadium that, if approved, will keep the Chargers in town. They were one of the three teams that applied to move to Los Angeles, and that's been put on hold pending this ballot initiative. The um, proposal is six hundred fifty million dollars in financing from the team and the NFL, one and 1 point15 billion dollars in bonds, three hundred fifty million dollars uh, city contribution, six hundred million dollars for a convention center, two hundred million dollars to acquire land. And so when you juxtapose what the chargers are asking, from the people of San Diego, from the city, from voters, with this contract negotiation with Bosa. It's even more bizarre to me that Chargers fans would be on the side of the team here. And again, shows Mina's point that we root for teams blindly and dumbly, and I would put myself in that category too.
3: But I think it's also something that is very specific or at least more heightened with the NFL. I mean, to go back to Colin Kaepernick, you know, the the opprobrium dumped on Kaepernick has something to do with the nature of National Football League fans, that there is this sort of, this, this greater blind loyalty to the institution. It's, you know, the NFL has done a great job of co-opting the public into making the public believe that they are proxy defenders of the shield. Um, and I think that's what we see in... You know, that's what we're seeing here with the defense of the Chargers. And, you know, but I mean, who knows whether the, the public is going to pass this referendum? I mean, cities have turned down these referenda in the past. So I'm not sure that you know, when you get past the small slice of the public that are devoted NFL fans, whether that loyalty will translate. Sure.
4: Well, let me make an appeal to Chargers fans on a football basis. If you don't care about players' rights, if you don't, if you're only team team or as Steph said, Chargers first, you should be angry with the team here because they, they this was a terrible defense last year. They were awful. They were ranked like last in adjusted sack rate, um, and they're wasting Philip Rivers' career, in my opinion. So you've got this number three pick, and he's about to make a very complicated position switch, and they're going to use him in a very complicated way. And because this team is so greedy that they won't just give him a signing bonus or whatever. You're not going to have him playing his best. You should be angry with this on a football basis.
5: One last thing, which I'd be curious for your comment on Mina, is just the willingness of veteran players and leagues, and this is a baseball thing, an NBA thing, and a football thing, to just sell out rookie players. Talked about him getting quarterback money the last guy who got quarterback money was Sam Bradford, who I think got $75 million under the previous CBA as the number one pick. And there's just this outrage from fans. You know, the Glenn Robinson contract in the N- NBA when he got, I think, uh, $100 million or more, around $100 million, uh as an unproven guy who'd never done it in the pros as the number one pick. That's really been drummed out of all of the sports. And so you have these guys like... Bosa, like whoever else has taken in the NFL, having incredibly productive years earlier in their career before they're comprehensively injured and getting paid not very much for it. So if we step back just a little bit and rethink team friendliness a little bit, just what a great deal the Chargers are getting to have a player who will likely be as valuable as Bosa will be for the amount of money they're not willing to pay. I mean, that's, that just makes it more silly.
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it is crazy how little money these players are getting coming into the NFL post-CBA. And, and when you consider that, how little this issue is. And it really, so, you know, we talk about, oh, this is offset. It's a little thing. It's one player. But these things add up. You know, in the last CBA, uh, a little thing was the fifth-year option. Well, that has a huge trickle effect throughout the league. So all of these little moves, uh, they move the needle further and further towards management. So Joey Bosa standing up for this, and I, I really do think he'll probably give in because he has no leverage here, but it does matter.
5: Before a couple of weeks ago, Gary Sanchez was best known as the fictional Paraguayan entrepreneur and financier who heads Adam McKay and Will Ferrell's production company. Now a different, allegedly real Gary Sanchez has risen to fame in the Bronx. On Saturday, the New York Yankees' 23-year-old Dominican catcher hit his 11th home run in the 22nd game of this season, the 23rd game of his career making him the fastest to 11 home runs in Major League history. The joys of arbitrary endpoints. As Deadspin put it over the weekend, Gary Sanchez is more or less Babe Ruth right now, which is a more delightful comparison for Yankees fans than, say, Shane Spencer or Kevin Moss, both of whom started their careers with amazing hot streaks before cooling off for the rest of their lives. I not think that's fair to Shane Spencer. <laughs> Why not? He played for a while. Kevin Moss— He cooled off. For the rest of his life. That is (laughs) eminently fair. Joining us now to, uh, you know, adjudicate uh, all of this, it's Sam Miller, the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus and the co-host of the podcast Effectively Wild, who I will now ask to put down the chisel he is using to carve Gary Sanchez's Hall of Fame plaque. Hello, Sam.
1: I don't think it's fair to say arbitrary endpoints either. Only one of the
5: endpoints is arbitrary. The first one (laughs) is not arbitrary. The start of your career is... Fairly non arbitrary, in my opinion. That's a great fact check already. Thank you, Sam. So the question here is how can you tell or can you tell if a baseball phenom is a is a certified, genuine baseball phenom?
1: Well, I mean the thing about Gary Sanchez, and I'm perfectly willing to take either position on this, so just <laughs> let me know if you if you need somebody to be, can be, bullish. be bullish. All right. The thing about him is that we've only seen him play in the majors for 96 plate appearances. But we've seen him as a professional baseball player forever. Gary Sanchez is like the longest standing prospect uh, in baseball. He was signed at age
3: 16.
1: He was signed at age 16. He was uh, a $3 million bonus player from, um, you know, from the Dominican Republic and everybody knew him. Even then he was the, probably the second best guy uh, on the market at the time. And ever (laughs) since then, he's been a top hundred prospect. Um, He, has been at Baseball Prospectus a top 100 prospect, five years in a row, which we speculated earlier this year was possibly a record, and we haven't done the research to check that. But I think he might be the only player who's been a top 100 prospect. Well, I shouldn't say the only, but I don't think anybody's ever done six, and now neither will he, because he'll lose his rookie status. So Gary Sanchez has been around forever. Um, and so it's not like we, we're we're dealing with Toe Nash here where we have to figure out who this guy is who came in from the cornfields. He is a player with 3,000 minor league played appearances who has probably had, I don't know, something on the order of 4,000 scouting reports written on him uh, in his career. He's probably been written about on baseball perspectives more than Cole Calhoun. Uh, so he's not a total mystery. Uh, and uh, those, all of those words put together tell you that he's probably going to be a really good player and he's probably not going to slug 900.
4: So what happened? Like, what, A, you know, why did it take this long? And B, what, what is the, the switch that flipped on?
1: Well, I'm generally, okay. So if you look at the best months that any player has had this year in Major League Baseball, speaking of arbitrary endpoints, Sanchez has the best month of, of anybody. But if you look at the guys after him, it's Charlie Blackmon, DJ LeMahieu, Tyler Naquin, Anthony Rizzo, Brandon Moss. So Rizzo is a superstar. Uh, Blackmon's very good. Um, but, you know, this happens for a month. Like Brandon Moss is not, like nobody's like buying futures in Brandon Moss right now. Uh, and so there's something about variance in baseball that I think is just stronger than in any other sport. Uh, and it's mysterious, and we don't know what to make of it. And over the course of 86 plate appearances, literally anybody can do literally anything. Um, and if it weren't coming at the start of Sanchez's career and, you know, if there weren't other factors at play that make us pay more attention to it, we would probably, I mean, we look, I, would, I was just about to say we would probably be skeptical of this, but we are. Everybody's skeptical of this, right? Nobody thinks that Gary Sanchez is going to hit, um, you know, 11 home runs every 20 games for the rest of his life. He's, not, he's in a hot streak. And so that's the, the downside. The, the more promising way of looking at it is that catchers tend to develop Irregularly. They tend to develop a little bit later, a little less linearly. They have a lot of work to do, uh, not just on their hitting, uh, but with their catching, with their catching technique, with dealing with pitching staffs, uh, and with um, the physical strain of being a catcher. And it is possible that Sanchez has made a leap forward. I think one of the things that's most interesting about Sanchez right now is not the hitting, which is very interesting, but that his defense has been really good. The knock on Sanchez for all of these years was that he doesn't have a great body, uh, that he's uh, something of an apathetic defender, that maybe his work ethic wasn't all that great, and that he would be a guy who would hit enough to play in the majors, but he might never have uh, all those skills to catch in the majors. And what we've seen is actually a very good defensive catcher. He uh, rates as uh, even going back to his recent minor leagues, he rates as one of the better pitch framers. In the game, he's been excellent throwing out runners. And uh, there's a possibility that he is just a guy who woke up one day and was just better at everything he does, that he woke up a better person. And that happens in
5: baseball.
3: or, Or that he woke up and wasn't 16, 17, 18, 19, or 20 years old. He's only 23 years old, and he was playing in the New York Yankees farm system. And the Yankees, over the last 20 years, have not exactly been willing to bring up potential players, good players, and displace players that they're paying between 10 and $25 million a season to perform. And finally, I mean, and this is the confluence of events. They weren't, they, you know, they were hovering it around 500, and Brian Cashman, finally with the approval of the Steinbrenner family, was given the green light to ditch, trade, acquire prospects, and promote players like Gary Sanchez.
4: Yeah, I guess that's my question about the Yankees more broadly. You know, for so many years, they've been kind of like your friend who is rich, but not that smart. So you can always be like, oh, this is my friend. He's actually kind of dumb, but he has a lot of money. I don't know. But now all of a sudden it's like, wait, no, you can't be both of these things. So do you feel like Gary Sanchez and Aaron Judge and I think Gleyber Torres, you know, the prospects they've gotten, do they signify this change that everyone's talking about? Is it real? Are we actually seeing a change in identity?
1: I think that um, it's never been clear whether they were smart or not. I I think a lot of people have considered Brian Cashman to be, uh, in some sense, a a wasted GM because there is a feeling, I think, that he's smart and that he's got a smart front office around him, uh, but that they weren't really ever allowed to play the game, uh, the front office game, the smart way or the way that we like it, the way that we sort of uh, applaud. Yeah, the modern way. The modern way. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Because he didn't have to. They could just go out and, and, and buy whatever they needed. And it got to a point, I think, where the cycle of that purchasing um, uh, cycle, I guess, uh, caught up to them, and they really had no choice. And they tried to get out of it a couple of years ago by getting under the um, luxury tax threshold, and it was sort of a, a mess and disaster. And they get another chance at it right here. It was, I think that there was a feeling among even some smart Yankees fans that uh, they were kind of hoping that they didn't do too well in June or July, because it was obvious that they had some valuable parts that they could move. Uh, and sort of reset and reboot. Uh, and they, they did it. And if you look at this team right now, they are a team that is much less like the, you know, the 2000s Yankees, and more like we see with the Cubs and the Red Sox, where they're building a team that is going to be sustainable because they have this great farm system. They have a lot more youth. They still have some salaries that are going to be burdensome, but those are mostly going away in the next year or two, and they're going to be poised uh, when the big free agents hit in two years, to, um, to have a, a lot of money and a very young core. I think, if anything, that is um, not necessarily that Brian Cashman is, has learned anything. I, I think he was there all along. Uh, it's just that these external forces kind of finally forced them or cleared the way for them to do the thing that GMs always want to do, which is build a great young core uh, that can win for a decade.
5: The thing that I always find really funny about these hot streaks, particularly around guys who are just up from the minors, is that after, you know, whether it's the fourth home run or the eighth or the twelfth, then you start seeing all these stories where like, they're going to start throwing and breaking balls. It's like, oh, why, why, why didn't you think of that on the, on the first game? Is there actually uh, this notion, Sam, that when a guy comes up from the minors, it's like we have to throw him all fastballs until he hits uh, 11 home runs?
1: Uh, No, there's not. I think that there is a default belief that all baseball players are weak in the same way. They can't hit inside fastballs and outside breaking balls, particularly when paired together. So if you are the rare phenomenon who can do that, who can hit those things, then I guess there is an adjustment period. And certainly they refine the approach that they take against you, but no, uh, the idea that like they've just been treating him like he's a, you know, pitcher, a batting in the national league is, is crazy. And I, one time looked at this with, I think, Yasiel Puig uh, to see whether young players are actually worse at hitting breaking balls uh, than their um, than veterans. And, and it's not the case. And I think I even looked at whether they get pitched differently. And, and I think that was not the case. I think that the adjustment thing is, is, vastly overblown there will be some adjustments on both sides um at some point in the next few years but for the most part he's just really hot like that's all there is to it it's not that he's probably seen like he's walking so it's not like they're throwing him a ton of fastballs down the middle they're clearly pitching him carefully uh, at this point he's just really really hot it happens it's like not necessarily predictive of a great career i i mean there are lots of things about gary sanchez right now that suggest a very good career. And probably the most basic one is actually just that he's playing. I went from 65 to 2005. Uh, If you look at all the catchers who got at least 100 plate appearances through age 23, it's not a very big group because catchers tend to develop late. They tend to spend more time in the minors. And so only 100 catchers have made 100 plate appearances through age 23, which Sanchez is about to pass. And of those 100, half of them would end up making an all-star game, simply being in the majors at this point is enough to feel really good about him as a player. The fact that his defense has been not just credible, but quite good so far is enough. And we know he's going to hit. Like, again, we have 3,000 plate appearances on him in the minors. He is a guy with great bat-to-ball skills. He makes good contact. He's strong. He doesn't have a lot of loft, and so he doesn't generally hit a ton of homers. But he's a good hitter who's demonstrated that he's a good hitter. And uh, he's in the middle of the hottest three weeks of his life, and it's fun to watch and probably doesn't actually change his outlook all that much, unless you want me to go through the long list of major leaguers who had 20 good games at the start of their career.
5: So let's talk about a guy who's a month and a half older than Gary Sanchez. He's ancient, and that is Bryce Harper. We had a Bryce Harper segment uh, earlier this year on the podcast when Harper was in the middle of a Sanchezian hot streak at the start of his season, and he has tailed off miserably. Like, he's been... Bad, I think, for most of the season after that hot start. He had this amazing, one of the best all time seasons last year at age 22, Sam. So, at what stage do we start to reevaluate who Harper is? Do we start to look at maybe this is due to like some terrible injury? Like, how do you assess what's been going on with him this season?
1: Well, first of all, he's hitting uh, 400 in the past two weeks. So if you want, I can come back (laughs) on in three weeks. And we can talk about how he turned another corner. Uh, Yeah, Rob Arthur at 5:38 did a great look at Harper's uh, exit velocity um, over the last two years. And he found two interesting things. One is that Harper last year got a lot more production than we would predict based on his exit velocity. He was a great power hitter uh, whose numbers nonetheless suggested that maybe, you know, he was hitting a lot of wall scrapers, I guess mm-hmm. is the best way to put it. Um, and there exit was velocity some de- being
5: the, the speed, of the, uh, the speed of the ball off the, off the bat. bat.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there was probably some regression that was coming anyway, uh, but he's not hitting the ball nearly as hard this year. He's especially not hitting the ball nearly as hard when it's right down the middle of the plate. He's been kind of an average hitter, which uh, means that you can really sum up Bryce Harper's bad season in one sentence. He's not hitting the ball as hard. He is drawing a ton of walks. He's been a very valuable player and a very valuable hitter because of that, but he doesn't hit the ball as hard as he used to. And uh, Harper's got a sort of a complicated swing. I mean, it's an unusual swing. It's it's a swing that you don't really see from other people. Uh, And so it's always possible, like I know that before he broke out last year, there was kind of an every year parlor game of looking at his swing and seeing if it had finally clicked. Uh, it's possible that there's something mechanical there, but I don't know. I mean, it, the really the the Occam's razor here is that there's some injury. And Tom Verducci reported a week ago that a source told him that Harper's had a shoulder injury for the last two months, which is uh, definitely the sort of injury that saps power. The Nationals denied it uh, and said that you know Harper assured them that that wasn't the case, but um, players lie about injuries or. They use, uh, you know, tricky language to uh, cover up injuries. And uh, that really seems like the most natural thing about it. I, I, I think that there's a feeling that when you see a 22-year-old do a great thing uh, that, well, he's just going to get better with age. We, you know, we know that players peak a little later in their career than that. But if you have a season that is as good as Harper's is, if you have a sort of an all-time season – Uh, it's usually the best bet that they're not getting better, that sometimes you have your best season when you're 22. Sometimes you have your best season when you're 20. And uh, so at Baseball Prospectus we have this projection system called Pocota that Nate Silver developed a long time ago. And uh, this year we had a game at the site where you could try to beat Pocota. You could pick all the players you thought were going to be better than Pocota said or all the players you thought were going to be worse than Pocota said. And Bryce Harper was the most popular pick to be better than Pakoda said. Everybody thought, well, the, the system, the algorithm is too slow to adjust. He's clearly a better player uh, who turned the corner and the, you know, the computers are too slow. And in fact, he is right now exactly what Pakoda said he was going to be, like exactly like to the thousand. Um, and so everybody was wrong. And, and you got to shut off crazy. the
5: system right now before he gets better. <laughs> shut it yeah. down. Unplug it. <laughs>
1: Reasonable to, to say that, well, you know, players do this. They get, they get better and they get worse. And um, Harper last year had a better year than we probably should have expected from him. Um, and now he's uh, kind of regressed. I don't think that's the case. I actually think that Pakoda is wrong. I think Harper is better than this. I think he'll be better next year than he is this year and better the year after that than he is this year. Well, and and as, um, Je-
3: as Jeff Sullivan pointed out on fan graphs, uh, Sam, there's a big element of luck here. When you hit a baseball, it's not all in your control. And Harper's numbers last year for batted balls in play and and other advanced metrics indicated that he was really fortunate in where the ball was going when he hit it. And he has not had that kind of good luck with batted balls in play this year, air ball contact and that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, this is kind of what we were talking about with Sanchez, too. The, The element of random fluctuation is kind of unfun to talk about when you're doing analysis of something it's hard to just throw your hands up and go well uh you know there's a lot of randomness to this game but it is the most i mean it's like like it's a it is if if it is not the absolute main character in baseball it is at least a strong supporting character in everything you do there's so much fluctuation from day to day from week to week and you know if you look at how baseball works a lot of times an out is an out because it was hit too hard it was hit too hard to fall in front of the outfielder and a lot of times a hit is a hit because it was hit too poorly for an outfielder to catch and when you have a game built around that luck uh then you're going to have a lot of weird swings and right now bryce harper's going through a weird swing i do i mean you know look i think even with all that he's not hitting the ball as hard and he's probably hurt in my opinion uh and that happens too uh but Bryce Harper had the best season ever by a 19-year-old. He had the best season ever by a 22-year-old. He's having a disappointing 23-year-old season. uh, But uh, if you were picking teams, he'd be probably the second or third guy you'd pick still.
3: well, Gary Sanchez, of course, being the first.
1: Yeah. And Shane Spencer, really right there with him.
5: Sam Miller, editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, co-host of the Effectively Wild podcast, chiseler of the Gary Sanchez Hall of Fame plaque. Thank you, Sam. You're welcome. Now it is time for After Balls. And I didn't get a chance to talk about this in our Kaepernick segment, but I was in Thailand a while back uh, for a wedding. It was lovely. And went to a movie, because I like to go to movies in foreign countries, and was very surprised to hear the royal anthem of Thailand being played before the movie. And Thailand is a very different place than the U.S. For example... Uh, according to the Wikipedia page for the Royal Anthem. In April 2008, it was reported that a Thai citizen was facing criminal charges for failing to stand for the playing of the Royal Anthem at a movie theater. And so, uh, obviously, not an equivalent gesture to fail to stand for the Royal Anthem versus the National Anthem in the U.S. as far as consequences faced. But I was just, like, so shocked that they played the, you know, anthem before a movie and like, oh, who does that? That's so weird. But it's really not any weirder than playing the national anthem before a sporting event. Right, Mina? Back yeah. Me up. Back me up here. <laughs> no,
4: no, it is great. I mean, when you really put it in perspective, yeah, I mean, the NFL is the greatest show in America. It is entertainment. What makes it somehow more appropriate uh, to honor the military at that event than a movie? When you, I don't know. I don't really think there's a difference.
3: Hmm. There's a royal anthem and a national anthem. The national anthem of Thailand is played on radio and television
5: twice a day.
4: Our royal anthem in America, I think, is Beyonce's Lemonade at this point.
5: Uh, with that, what is your royal anthem, Mina?
4: So I'm just going to do what I did a year ago and just tell an awkward story about a article that I didn't write that doesn't reflect Volani. I was just <laughs> in the Olympics in Rio for a couple of weeks in addition to, you know, siding with Ryan Lochte, I was just kind of writing about some of the events there, especially women's sports. And I we were staying in an apartment complex in basically what's the equivalent of Queens in Rio. And so I would just go to the same place for lunch every day. And I was walking to lunch, I think maybe on the third or fourth day I was in Rio. So this thing's rolling towards me and it's a bulldog on a skateboard. <laughs> so <laughs> where is this going so I, I'm a dog lover I really missed my dog at that point so I'm like oh it's so cute so I asked the guy if I can take a picture uh, I don't speak any Portuguese but he lets me take a picture of this dog a few days go by I'm touring Rio with the group and I'm talking to our driver about my dog as I want to do and I'm like oh funny thing I saw this, this dog on a skateboard the other day so I show him a picture and he's like oh yeah I'm like what and he's like yeah they're, they're everywhere so, in my head, I'm like, oh my God, I just found the stray dogs of Sochi, the skateboarding dogs of Rio. <laughs> my editor is going to go wild for this. So, I proceed to waste the next 24 hours looking for Kachoro Sk- Skatista. And he's right, there are a ton of these dogs in Brazil. In fact, I think it might be a Latin American thing because there was that famous bulldog who skateboarded through people's legs. I don't know if you remember that video or GIF on the internet. Uh, and that turned out it was in Peru. So I'm like, maybe this is a thing here. So I start contacting people. Don't hear back probably because I didn't contact them in Portuguese. Uh, it's not a good reporting method. So I go to the park and I'm going up to people with dogs and trying to ask them if their dog's skateboard, but I don't speak Portuguese, so I'm mimicking the dog on a skateboard. People are like, what is wrong with you? Get away from my dog, don't touch my dog. So I do this for like a day, and I'm like, you know what, I, I'm, I'm about to give up. So I decided to go to a skate park, and <laughs> <laughs> my editor's like, or maybe you could cover one of the Olympic sports. <laughs> so I give up on the story. I'm like, you know what, this is just not gonna happen. Then on the last day, I left after two weeks, I'm rolling my suitcase out. What do I see? Another skateboarding dog. I'm not sure if I dreamed it up. I, it may have been like a fever dream on the way out. So I'm, I'm asking any in Brazil, if you know the owner of a skateboarding dog, you know, it only takes three to make a trend, please contact me. I still believe this is going to be my Pulitzer winning
5: story. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, yeah you, you got to pursue this to the ends of the earth. Thank you. Stefan, what is your royal anthem?
3: Well, on the third play of a preseason game against Mina's Seattle Seahawks last Thursday, Dallas quarterback Tony Romo was hit and he grabbed his back, according to Pro Football Talk's Mike Florio, quote, like Fred Sanford clutching his chest in anticipation of the big one. But I'm not here to reminisce about 1970s sitcoms, though, for the record, I did love Sanford and Son. Let's look instead at the five stages of grief response to the injury from Cowboys owner Jerry Jones and head coach Jason Garrett. After the game, Romo said he was fine because athletes always say they're fine. Garrett said he was fine too. Said a few prayers right there, Jones said. He said Romo's back was in good shape and we, everyone had a scare and he was not hurt. Garrett said, initially, I think he was in a little bit of shock. He didn't feel real good, but once a little time went by, I think he was feeling better, better, and better. We don't think there's anything serious. Bear in mind that Romo's back had not been MRI'd or X-rayed, and as any NFL player will tell you, your initial reaction to an injury is to pretend that it didn't happen. Mid-afternoon Friday, ESPN's Ed Werder tweets, Tony Romo broken bone in back. So in 18 hours, we went from definitively not hurt to broken back. (laughs) Garrett refused to rule Romo out for the season opener, though. On Saturday, Ian Rappaport of NFL.com reported that Romo would likely need an epidural if he was going to play because it's always smart to numb an injured back and then let 300-pound guys fall on you. Later, the same Saturday, came news that Romo actually had a compression fracture of his L1 vertebra and was expected to be out for 6 to 10 weeks. And he was wearing a back brace and still Garrett wouldn't rule him out for game one. For game one? (laughs) For game one. We've gotten a lot of different timetables for when he can return. We also know that he's played with a broken bone in his back before. So there's no reason for me to stand up here and put a timetable on this. Yes, he's played with a broken back before. So why not play with one again? Jerry added, (laughs) this is nowhere near the issue he had last year, not even in the same league as far as we're concerned. Last year's issue was a broken collarbone. All right, if throwing is your job, maybe a broken (laughs) collarbone is indeed in a league of its own. But this is Romo's fourth back injury in three years. In 2014, he suffered two fractures that didn't require surgery. In 2013, he had a cyst removed in the spring, and then he had surgery for a herniated disc. Uh, with a game left in the season. Let's take a look at how Garrett and Jones handled that break, which resulted from an apparent kick to his back. Afterward, Jones said Romo had tightness. The next day, Adam Schefter of ESPN reported that Romo was out for the next game. Jones, though, denied it. Romo only had back spasms. There's nothing structurally to prevent him from playing, Jones said on his radio show. Garrett added, right now we have a quarterback who's getting treatment. The best part of all this was that while talking about Romo's medical condition, Jones cited HIPAA patient confidentiality laws for declining to give further details. In any event, three days later, Romo had surgery, which Jones dismissed. The nature of his injury was not alarming. It was not complicated. All right, in both 2013 and 2016, Jerry and Jason moved on immediately to praise the next quarterback up and stress how this was not the end for Romo. It is the five stages of grief in three quick news cycles. As I type this, we are in the home stretch of acceptance. We love Tony. Tony's great. Tony's coming back. But yeah. Dak Prescott is the man. All right, look, whether he quits now or later, Tony Romo is going to be fucked up from football for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, the NFL's hipaa anti-inflammatory injecting, and opioid-pushing owners and coaches and doctors will keep minimizing injuries and ignoring the long-term health consequences for players, all while emphasizing the truly important cost of an injury to a Tony Romo. Quote, really just couldn't imagine getting that hand dealt to us. Jerry said after Romo was hurt last week, to us, poor fucking you, Jerry. Poor fucking you.
4: Do you think if Tony Romo was no longer alive, Jerry Jones would push like a weekend at Bernie's scenario <laughs> and just drag him onto the field? Drag him onto the field? He's fine. He's fine. Guys, guys, he's smiling. He's Put smiling. like sunglasses on him. He's so played could...
5: He's played dead before. The broken so. back always does it, does it for me. And it's happened for Romo so many times. Just how common is it to hear he has a broken bone in his back he can play through it that one always cracks me up (laughs) I
4: can't watch him anymore I don't know how you guys feel it's definitely in Wes Welker territory for me where when they try him out in the field I'm just cringing so hard that I no longer enjoy and I think he's
3: excellent
5: he's fine that's like 85 percent of the NFL he'll be he'll be fine Josh
3: what's your royal anthem
5: On Sunday, The Washington Post's Cindy Boren wrote a piece headlined, Colin Kaepernick protest has 49ers fans burning their jerseys, lest you (laughs) accuse her of false pluralization. There are indeed, she does cite two examples of people burning Kaepernick jerseys. This is a ritual every time a player says or does something controversial, one or maybe two people, if it's a real outrage, uh, make a show of burning said player's jersey, putting it on Facebook and then the dreaded sports media fans the flames. But as we poke our Kaepernick jerseys with the set of fireplace tools we've reserved for just this occasion, let's pause to remember the player who once burned his own jersey. On May 12th, 1971, Dick Wade of the Kansas City Star reported that the Royals clubhouse was closed after the game, which was very unusual. When reporters were finally admitted, Wade wrote, the cause and effect was all too evident. The room was filled with thick, acrid smoke, and the remnants of burned baseball equipment was in front of Carl Taylor's locker. Taylor had had an interesting week. Two days before, he dived to catch a ball, and the umpire had ruled he trapped it rather than caught it cleanly. Taylor charged at the ump, and when his teammate Cookie Rojas tried to get between them, Taylor knocked Rojas to the ground. Boys will be boys, though, so Taylor was still in the lineup against the Orioles two days later. After starting the game 0-2 for 2 with a strikeout and a groundout, Taylor pulled himself from the game. According to AP reports from the following day, he told his manager, Bob Lemon, I quit, then burned all of his equipment. According to the AP, Taylor, who was hitting 189 at the time, said, I can't take any more. I'm not helping this club. Taylor was the stepbrother of Orioles' first baseman, Boog Powell, which you know, makes you wonder why he didn't start his own barbecue stand, uh, perhaps a better better synergy. He there. he was
3: already already experienced mm. with flames.
5: They uh, played together, Boog and Carl in the 1954 Little League World Series. Uh, and not the, for Korea. Not for Korea. And Powell and uh, Taylor were playing against each other. It was Royals and Orioles in these games. Powell said in an interview two days later, I talked and talked to him for about 45 minutes. I talked my head off. I didn't want him to go. He's a good kid. I tried to get him to rationalize the whole thing. That's not what that means. To think about what was at stake. I live only eight blocks from the ballpark. And I said to him, come on back home with me. We'll have a couple of beers and talk this thing out. Whatever the problem is, it can't be that bad. But it was no use. He was dead set. So I found this column from the Sarasota Herald Tribune, November 15th, 1972, that explains what Carl Taylor was thinking. The Keeping Score column by Alan Lasilla. We've all read it. He writes, normally a consistent hitter, Taylor was in the throes of a batting slump early in the season. His mother was seriously ill with a terminal disease. Then he misplayed a ball in the outfield. Burning the sweatshirt was a release. I realize now that I was more concerned with my personal problems than with playing baseball. Taylor said, I was playing terrible. I just went to the clubhouse and burned the uniform. Most of the players understood. They've all wanted to do something like that at one time or another. The column goes on to describe him flying home to Sarasota to be with his family, sitting in uh, Key West where he'd grown up, sitting in the ballpark in Key West for an hour, just thinking my whole life passed before me, all the memories from my high school days I realized I had received too much and had given too much to give up baseball. That changed my attitude. He went back to the Royals, went to A. He was uh, traded again to the Pirates for cash before the season was over. The Pirates won the World Series, but he was traded too late to be on the roster. Carl Taylor was out of baseball a couple years later, ended uh, hitting 266 and 846 at bats between 1968 and 1973, later became the video coordinator for the Yankees, and according to the Yankees media guide circa the 90s, threw batting practice and was the club's, quote, resident barber. So no barbecue stand for Carl Taylor. Barbershop instead. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup@slate.com. at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes to the podcast and give us a rating. It helps us out. Give us a comment and a rating itunes.com slash slate podcast is where you do that become a fan of hang up and listen on facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen thanks to mina kimes for sitting in this week our producer is mickey capper the executive producer of slate's podcast is steve lichtai and andy bowers is the chief content officer of panoply hang up and listen is part of the panoply network check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply remember zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening